Well, I am uh, looking forward to getting back into 1 Samuel. Now, I must uh, confess that I've, I've struggled with kind of how to pick this section back up and also just still wanting to stay in the Psalms. The book of Psalms is uh, one of my favorite books in the Bible, and I gravitate towards the book of Psalms. As I've mentioned before, the New Testament quotes the Psalms more than any other Old Testament book. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the story of David from 1 Samuel chapter 19 on to uh, chapter 24 or so, and then we're, we're going to look at we're going to look at some lessons that we can learn from David's experience in the wilderness. David, for this next season of his life, he is going to be living his life on the run, hiding in caves doing desperate, humiliating things just so that he could escape this mad and crazy king who wants to take his life, okay? And so what I've titled this sermon here today is Desperation, Desperation and Dependence. Desperation and dependence. If you live long enough, at some point, you're going to experience a low, low, dark, difficult time in your life. Even those who love Jesus and are walking with Jesus and are walking upright with the Lord are going to experience some very low and difficult times. Throughout history, writers have described this as the dark night of the soul, okay? And, and, and so brothers and sisters throughout history have gone through the most difficult of times. Some of the most godly people have struggled with what's called spiritual depression, where the soul is so weighed down and discouraged, and, and brothers and sisters are wrestling with hope and despair and doubt and fear and, and anxiety. And one of the good things that we have in the Bible is we have scriptures and stories of people who've gone through these really difficult times and they've made it. They've made it through those difficult times with the help and the strength of the Lord. And one of the things I love about this passage in 1 Samuel and in the Psalms that are connected to it is we not only get narrative of David's life when he's on the run, being persecuted for, for, for nothing Ill, Ill, Ill that he had done wrong, but being persecuted because a mad, crazy king is envious of him and wants to take his life. What we, what we have here is not only this narrative of, of how God spared his life and how he walked through these desperate, difficult, dark times, but we also see how he felt in the Psalms. In the Psalms, we get his journal entries, we get his songs, we get his, his history with the Lord, how he wrestled through these dark times and bringing those burdens to God in prayer. Amen? And so I believe that especially those who raise their hands today saying, I'm in a difficult time, I believe that this, this word here for us is going to be a comfort and encouragement. There are many lessons for us to learn when we're in the wilderness. And I almost titled this message, Lessons from the Wilderness, okay? And so we learn about David's life and him 
depending upon God, him walking through times of desperation, doing whatever he can to, to have his life spared. And sometimes maybe not even the best thing. It's questionable, right? And we'll look at that here shortly. Let me pray and we'll open the text together. Father, as we open your word, would you shine your light into our hearts and enlighten the eyes of our understanding. Help us to see wondrous things in your word. Fill us with hope to conquer despair. Fill us with joy to conquer the mourning and the over, overwhelming heaviness. Fill us with peace to counter the fear and anxiety that that robs our quality of life and lead us into your truth and your righteousness, your kingdom come and your will be done here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as I was mentioning, life isn't always a restful day at the beach. Sometimes it's like a hurricane that we are taking shelter from. We go, we go for a nice, sunny, calm day at the beach, and there's a storm coming, and we need to take shelter. We are going to look at David's life taking shelter. When things were going well for him, he had saw some victories, like fighting Goliath, and had been exalted to the king's palace and had become one of the king's musicians and he got the minister to King Saul when the harmful spirit came upon King Saul and the spirit would, would leave him. And, and David had this comfortable, secure position, seemingly secure position, comfortable position, prestigious position. He had honor. He had recognition as being this mighty warrior. He was a mighty warrior, probably the most mightiest warrior around at, in, the, in his day. And King Saul was jealous and envious of him. And so let's pick it up in chapter 19. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan, Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in the secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And, when, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in, the hand, in his hand and struck down the Philistine, that's Goliath, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in the presence as before, in his presence as before, and there was a war against him. 
And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. David was playing the lyre and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent his messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Mike McCall, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. This is the word of the Lord. And I'm going to stop here. And I just wanted to launch from this point because I wanted us to get a, I want us to get a glimpse of what's going on here. And this, this specific phrase that, that's repeated in these next couple of chapters, David fled. David fled fled. David fled and escaped that night. That verse captures what David would be doing for the next season of his life. He would be on the run from the one who had the most powerful, the the most powerful man in the land at the time. What do you do when the king, the one who has the most power and authority in the land, is after your very life and wants to kill you and he's mad, he's gone crazy? What do you do? David fled. And with the help of, of Jonathan and his wife, Michal, he was able to escape that night. And we see this over and over. Here's our big idea this morning. God delivered David and developed him through difficult circumstances, which prepared him for kingship. During David's lowest moments, he trusted God And he did what he could to survive. So we see David on the run over and over and over. And he was in the wilderness. He was hiding in caves. He was going through a time of testing. He experienced his life being stripped down bare to where he had no other crutch to lean on. Okay? His closest friend, Jonathan, who he was tight with, his very best friend, they loved each other. They were encouraged by one another. They both loved the Lord. They were both warriors. And and Jonathan, Saul's son, was defending him and and trying to to advocate for him and aid him so that David could could live. He He had to leave his friend and not see his friend anymore. He couldn't call or text or Facebook his friend. There was no none of that connection. He was on the run. He also had to leave his wife, Michal, Saul's daughter, who Saul gave to David in hopes that she would be a snare to, King, uh, to David. And, and she aided David and helped him escape. We see also, you read a little bit further down, Saul ended up living with the prophet Samuel for just a little bit. Saul was able, David, I'm sorry, David was able to stay with the prophet Samuel for a little bit and and hang out there until Saul got word about it. And then Saul was after David's life to to take him out. Saul was a madman. Saul was paranoid or schizophrenic. Saul was having a mental breakdown, an emotional breakdown. He was deteriorating from the inside. 
And he couldn't trust anyone. He was full of suspicion about everyone. Everyone around. And, and one, one writer describes him as a, um, not so much a human being, but a civil war. Not so much a human being, but a civil war. He became a living civil war, miserable, possessed of an evil spirit, mentally breaking, a suspicious, angry, jealous man. And as a result, he struck out against the most trusted and suspicious. Um, um, he struck out against the most trusted and trustworthy servant in his camp, namely David. And so Saul was after David. He's chunking spears at him. He makes orders that David's life is to be taken from him. And David escaped. David lived with Samuel and Naoth. First uh, Samuel 19 verse 18. Saul was, went after him. He heard about it. Saul sent some messengers and the Spirit of God disarmed them and they began to prophesy. The Spirit of God came upon Saul when Saul showed up and disarmed him and he began to prophesy and this kind of weird scene happened where he even got naked, uh, which was a very weird, weird uh, experience that happened there. But nevertheless, Saul was disarmed from fulfilling his evil intentions to take David's life. Saul was anti-David or anti-anointed because David had become the, new, the anointed king, the one that God was raising up, the man after God's own heart. He made a, we see in, in, in chapter 20 that, that Jonathan and David made this covenant and, and Jonathan was committed to, to advocating for him. And he, and he said, uh, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And they had this emotional felt farewell, knowing that they wouldn't see each other again. And they wept. They wept. I don't think there was anything unclean or fishy in this relationship as, as some people would try to advocate. I think this was a holy, godly relationship between the two. And so David found himself taking desperate measures. He showed up to Abimelech in chapter 21. He showed up to the priest to get some bread. And the holy bread that wasn't to be, just be uh, commonly given out. And so he asked for it and he was able to get some. But, but in that moment, he told a lie to the priests. He showed up trembling uh, and the priest asked him, Ahimelech asked him, why are you alone and, and, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has changed me with the matter and said, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you which I've charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such place. Now then, do you have uh, any bread on hand? Do you have any on hand? Give me five loaves and bread and whatever's there. And so the priest was, went along with it. He didn't realize what was going on. Which later on, uh, when Saul heard about it, Saul had this priest and 85 other priests put to death along with others who were with them. And so David felt terrible about this thing that he did. He was in desperate times and he took desperate measures. And the Bible gives this as a description of something that happened. And I love that the Bible records not only the successes of God's people, 
but also the bloopers and also the failures, also the sins, because ultimately God's the hero of the Bible. And the Bible points us to the greater king, Jesus. And so, so David regretted what he did, and, and he mentioned it later on uh, in, in, in telling this lie, not being straightforward, but he did it out of desperation so that he wouldn't get caught by King Saul. And then he shows up to Gath. Now, he's really desperate. If he goes to the hometown of Goliath, all right, he shows up there, and, and this, is, this is really interesting. It says that in, in 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 15, it says, David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? And Saul struck down the, his ten thousands and David... Saul, Saul struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and he was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So listen to this. Here's what, here's what he does. In his desperation, he changed his behavior before them and he pretended to be insane in, the hands, in their hands and made, and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And then, and, then he, um, and then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? There's a little bit of humor in this, right? And, and this is, I, I think there's a lot of beauty in this too. I, I, I appreciate David's, humility but he had hit he had hit rock bottom like he had desperate measures often call for um what is it desperate times often call for desperate measures as the saying goes and 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 he was using the desperate measures at this point now this was interesting it was very crafty and it actually worked and when david looks back on this experience we have psalm 34 by the way and he's recounting that experience and you know what david says about that he says i sought the lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears those who look to him shall be radiant and their faces shall not be ashamed David attributed the deliverance that he experienced from this Gentile king. He attributed it not to his own craftiness and cleverness to come up with a plan that would work to help him escape. He attributed it to God who delivers his life and sustains his life. And God uses certain means to bring that about and people to bring that about. And so we see David experiencing this fear, this mighty warrior, one of the mightiest warriors or the mightiest warrior warrior of the day who took out Goliath. He was afraid. He was afraid. He experienced fear. And again, one of the things I love about the Psalms is they hit on every human emotion, as one theologian argues. Every human emotion that we experience, it touches on every single one of those and teaches us how to manage and work through those in a healthy way. And then we see at, at, in, in chapter 22, we see God gathering some folks around David, bringing David's family 
to him and, and this motley crew that surrounded him in, in, in 1 Samuel uh, chapter uh, 22, verse 1, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam, at, at Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down to, there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter of soul gathered to him and he became the commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Now, I, I don't, I don't want to get too far ahead here uh, because there's a period where David is alone. And he didn't have that. He didn't have Jonathan. He didn't have McCall, his wife. He didn't have Samuel. All right? He didn't have his great position in the palace as the king's assistant. He didn't have all that. And you might even argue, as, as one author does, that he even lost his self-respect to go to such low measures for deliverance. He experienced what A.W. Tozer calls the blessedness of possessing nothing. The blessedness of possessing nothing. You see, sometimes when we have a lot of great things, even good gifts in our lives, we enjoy them and they distract us. And, or we, we enjoy them and, and we, just, we, we, don't, we don't grow like we would when those things are taken away from our lives. Or if we were to voluntarily give them up, like fasting, food, all right? There's growth that happens in us. And there are lessons that the people of God must learn when they walk through the times of wilderness. Because we're all going to go through them. And David was plunged into the wilderness. He was plunged into the wilderness. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says about this experience that David had in these wilderness times. He said, David didn't start out in the wilderness and he didn't end up in the wilderness, but he did spend a significant amount of time there, mostly holed up in caves. Everybody, at least everybody who has anything to do with God spends time in the wilderness hiding in caves. So it's important to know what can take place there. David didn't choose to enter the wilderness. He was chased there. These wilderness years are a study of contradictions. On, on David rested both the anointing of God and the animosity of Saul. He was both a friend of God and an enemy of the king. He was both divinely protected and diligently hunted. David had much help and support early on. Samuel, Michal, Jonathan were all conspicuous names. But now he was on his own. Still the plot continues to, the, to center around David. Saul was increasingly isolated to the providence of God while David emphatically at its center. When we find ourselves in the wilderness... We aren't in control of our lives the way we were in our lamp-lit neighborhoods with well-marked well streets and well-traveled sidewalks. When we're in the wilderness, however, we commonly feel our lives deepening. 
Many people, after a few days in the wilderness, feel themselves, feel more themselves, uncluttered and spontaneous. Very often, even though otherwise accustomed to it, they say the name God. There's something wonderfully freeing about the wilderness, but there's also something terribly frightening about it. The wilderness is beautiful, but unpredictable. A storm can turn an angel caressed sky into a devil's calderon. An, an animal can change in an instant from the most graceful of God's creatures in the fierce, into the fiercest of killers. The wilderness has a hundred different ways to kill us, from sunstroke to starvation. This is the wilderness that David entered, both beautiful and dangerous. He saw, heard, and experienced things in the wilderness that couldn't be seen, heard, or experienced anywhere else. When we find ourselves in the wilderness, we, we do well to be afraid. We also do well to be alert. In the wilderness, we're plunged into an awareness of danger and death. And at the very moment, we're plunged if we let ourselves be into the awareness of the great mystery of God and the extraordinary preciousness of life. David's wilderness years combined these elements of preciousness and the precariousness. There were 15 wilderness stories ahead for David, and who knows how many are ahead for you and for me. The wilderness. You see, it, it stirs an angst within us. It brings us to a place of desperation. It was a few weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 63, and this was written from the wilderness. And David, he said, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Or how about Psalm 42, as the psalmist is describing his experience through spiritual depression, he says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you or pants for you. You see, when we're walking through this blessedness of possessing nothing, when our lives are stripped from all the comforts and the crutches that we have, and all we are left with is God, there's a blessing there. God is working there. He's in there's, there's beauty in the brokenness. He sees our tears. He sees our struggle. I mean, I, I think it's interesting that so many are, are intrigued by these TV shows, as, as I am in my family, like alone. It's these survival in the wilderness TV shows. And it's just interesting to watch how are these humans going to respond when all the comforts of modern life are stripped away from them? How long will they last when they can't find food very well? How long will they last when they don't have the comfort of community that they once knew, the, the music that they're able to experience, the, the fast food that they're able to get real quick? And the list goes on and on. The, the internet connection, no Wi-Fi in the wilderness. How are these people going to respond when there's the fear of these bears or lions or wolves or some crazy animal, wild mustard ox, you know? It's just, it's, it's interesting to watch. How are they going to respond? And we see David lived his life in this space and he lived it with God. God was with him. Now, even before this, 
You know, he was faithful keeping his father's sheep out in the fields. And he took on a lion. He took on a bear. He was ready to take on Goliath, and God was with him, and he took on Goliath. But now he's, he's being chased and hunted down by the king and the king's army. And so let's look at some of the lessons here for us to learn from David from the Psalms that are associated with this season of life that David was in. Psalm 142, Psalm 57, Psalm 56, Psalm 34 are just some of the, the Psalms that they give a little inscription at the top that, that let us know, here's the background, here's what was going on. And I encourage you this week to read these in your, in your time with the Lord, read these in, in, in light of 1 Samuel 19 through 24 or so. And, and just reflect on, on David's response, the glimpse that we get of David's heart and his communion with God while he's at his lowest moments in his life. Because we're all going to have our low moments as well. And so, um, as it's mentioned here, you know, the, this was when he was in the cave, Psalm 142, right? It was uh, when he fled from Saul in the cave. Um, it was uh, when the Philistines seized him in Gath, 1 Samuel 21, right? Um, or, or when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. And so, so here's a couple of lessons that we learn from David's life in the wilderness. The first one is he teaches us how to manage our complaints, he teaches us how to manage our complaints. When you're stripped of every comfort that you have in this life, and it's, life is hard, there is a tendency to complain. There's a way to do it, and there's a way not to do it. The New Testament warns us against complaining, murmuring and complaining. God got frustrated with the Israelites who, in their unbelief, murmured and complained against God. When they didn't have water for Three days, they complained, and they came to the water of Mara, and they, the waters were bitter. In Exodus 15, they complained. They complained. Moses cried out to the Lord. God showed him a tree, threw it into the water. God turned the waters from bitter to sweet. When you're faced in, uh, in, with troubled times, times of desperation, times of darkness, time, times of difficulty, do you complain against the Lord in accusation or do you complain to him and pour your heart out to him, cry out to him? Listen to what David says in Psalm 142. And this, this kind of captures, Psalm 142 captures David's bottom. <laughs> the bottom out, like the desperation times, you know what I mean? With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge, re remains for, no refuge remains for me. No one cares for my soul. David feels alone. All those comforts that he had of family and friends and all the support that he had of his, his normal life in Israel had been taken away from him. 
But he had, he had as A.W. Tozer says, the blessedness of possessing nothing. But he had God. He had something better than anything this world has to offer. Any comfort that this world has to offer. He had God. God was with him. And so David lifted up his voice. He says, I cry out to the Lord with my voice and plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. Some of us, when we have a complaint, some of us may may struggle to communicate that to God. Now, let me just say this. God already knows when there's a complaint in your heart. God already knows when there's a complaint in your heart and inside you're, you're like, you're questioning his goodness. You're questioning, God, are you really for me? Now, he can handle it if you tell him what's going on in your heart. He knows already. Even before we, we pray our prayers, he sees what's there and it would do us much good to vocalize that to him to be frank with him, to be honest with him, to be direct with him about the struggle in your heart. Like put off the religious facade when it comes to praying and you know the the little things that we do and, and pray until you pray. Like get down and shoot it straight with God. Tell him what's going on in your life and in your heart. He already knows. He already sees it. And so instead of complaining about God, murmuring and complaining in a in a toxic way there's a healthy way to pour out our complaints to god because when your soul is just overwhelmed and you're just crushed and you're in desperate times you got a complaint that needs to go somewhere and that's the first place it should go we should bring it to god because ultimately he's the one who's in charge of our lives and in charge of our circumstances. Some of us spend way too much time sending out all our complaints this way, and we haven't taken the time to bring our complaints this way to God in prayer and cry out to him in prayer. Let, I, was re, I, I picked up a book that I have that, that, that it gives some great insights on the book of Psalms and the, the emotional life of human beings by a guy named Dan Allender. It's called The Cry of the Soul. And this is what he says about the Psalms. He says, the Psalms help us to understand that every emotion is a theological statement. Let that sink in for a moment. Every emotion, the Psalms help us to understand that every emotion is a theological statement. All feelings reveal our attempt to maneuver into a position of regaining access to the pleasures and the perfection of God. All dark emotions are rooted in our reactive response, flight, to being out of the garden, in our aggressive response, fight, to regain access to Eden. Our natural response to pain is to attempt to get relief from our suffering, either by fighting in anger or by fleeing in fear. Now again, our our emotional life can help us kind of see what's going on in our hearts and what we really believe about God. I like to describe our emotions as kind of like the dashboard lights that that kind of the oil change, check engine light, look under the hood and you keep driving. But when it says change the oil, don't don't do that for too long because you might you're going to have a breakdown in the vehicle. All right, you're going to or or if it's if it shows to be hot, don't keep driving and there's smoke coming out the top. You're going you're gonna, to, in this 100 degrees weather, you're going to get overheated on the side of the road, right? 
And so, so our emotional life kind of helps us. It helps. We, we can utilize our emotions to get down to the heart. And we can do this with one another in relationships and, and talk to one another like, why are you upset? Or why am I upset? Why are you afraid? And, and kind of d- follow those emotions to find out what's going on in here underneath the hood. All right? Now, there are times when we have to just do what's right and believe the truth of God's word, even though we may not feel it. And there's times when we have a mix of emotions, and our emotions seem to contradict what we truly believe, all right? And so we need to go against, push, give, give some pushback to that, but, it, but we still need to explore why am I feeling the way that I am? Why do I have a complaint against God? What did God do to me? Or what am I expecting from God? What has God not done for me when I've expected him to do something? We talk about, we, we use terms of life and work and family, and we, we talk about everything else, but ultimately, our complaints are against God. When we're vocalizing them all here, and we're talking about work, family, health, and all the different things, here's one, the heat. I mean, that's, that's convicting of me. I've, just, I've talked about the 100 degrees weather, and I enjoy the cooler weather. Just 10 degrees lower, you know, over the past week has been so refreshing, but under there, I just I question: Is there a little complaining going on there? Where and my my oh, talking about it being so hot, a little too much, and my AC not working like I think it should be, right? Am I complaining against God? And so, the Psalms also teaches David teaches us how to face our fears. David, the mighty warrior, admitted that he was afraid. Okay. He admitted, he said, listen to what he says in Psalm 56. He says, be gracious to me, O God, for, a, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? No, notice he says, when I'm afraid, when I'm afraid, it's okay to admit that there's fear. I don't think it's helpful to deny when you're afraid, to ignore it, to not face it, to not address it. It's helpful to face it and talk about it and get down to what is going on. What lie am I believing about God or myself or the world that needs to be addressed, that I'm letting fear dominate me and cripple me from doing what God's called me to do and being who God's called me to be. Now, on the flip side of this, in Psalm 34, David said, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Now, he's on the back end of this, looking back, saying, here's how I worked through it. I I trusted God. I brought my my petition to God, my, my request to God. I looked to God in prayer. I depended upon God in my desperate time. I sought the Lord. He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. This is when he delivered him from Abimelech, the king, who thought he was mad. And instead of killing him, he was just like, get that guy out of here, man. That guy's crazy. I don't need any more crazy guys around here. We got enough of them, right? And so he teaches us how to work through our fears. He teaches us, uh, David, and in this psalm, he teaches us how to fear God rather than the fear man. 
Because the fear of God will counter, it'll counteract the fear of man and the fear of death and the fear of evil in our lives. When we fear God, when we realize God's in charge, not these other people who are trying to take my life. God's in charge, not King Saul, who's trying to kill me right now. Or Abimelech, the Philistines, or Goliath. God's in charge, and so I trust him, I seek him. David also teaches us to trust God. And that's within uh, that same verse that we just read. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. Derek Kinder, in his commentary, says that faith is seen here as, an, as a deliberate act in defiance of one's emotional state. The first line might too easily have run, when I'm at peace, I will trust in the Lord. But it doesn't say that. It says, when I'm afraid, I will trust in the Lord. And so we have to face our fears with trust in what God says, being reminded of who he is and what he has promised to us. David also teaches us to be confident in God's loving care. He teaches us to be confident in God's loving care. He says, look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to that confidence statement. You are my refuge. You are my portion in the land of the living. Now remember, David is, is holed up in this cave. And it must have been a big, big cave that he was at. It must have had some space in there, but, but still, you don't get the sunrises and the sunsets and the freedom that you get when you're out and about. But he's, he's, in, he's on the run. He's taking refuge in a cave that, that shelters him from the, the elements and from the armies. But ultimately, he's saying, God, you're my refuge. And God, you're my portion he says, bring me out, in verse, uh, Psalm 142.7, bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. Hear the confidence in God's loving care. Psalm 57.3, he will send from heaven and save me. He will, he will put to shame him who tramples on me, Selah. God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. One of the terms that David repeats over and over in the Psalms is God's hesed. The steadfast love of the Lord surrounds those who trust in him, as we looked at last week in Psalm 32. He mentions God's hesed, God's steadfast love. That God revealed himself, that's a part of his character when he showed Moses his glory in Psalm, in, in Exodus 30, 34. This, David knew this is who you are, God. You are steadfast in love, rich in love. Even when life doesn't feel good, even when my circumstances are bitter and dark and painful, God, you are still good, you are still loving, and your love doesn't change and it doesn't fail, and it's a comfort to me when there's no one else around to comfort my soul. You're there with your presence, your loving presence, your loving care, your provision, your protection. God's steadfast love was weaved throughout David's life, his entire life, even in these darkest moments. And he's talking about it, even in these darkest, darkest moments. 
And God's steadfast love, saints, is weaved throughout your life, even through your darkest moments. He's been good, he's been loving, and his love for you has not changed. It is steadfast. It never ceases. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. He says, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. He also said in, in, uh, I think, verse 2 of 57, he says, God fulfills his purpose for me. He was confident that God would bring about his good plans for his life. Remember, God had the prophet Samuel anoint King David to be the next king. There was promise ahead of David, but David was living in contradiction in, in what seemed to be a contradiction. Okay, God, you said I'm going to be king. You said you're for me, right? You know, you, you let me have these victories, but like, I'm like one, he told Jonathan, I am one step away from death. That's how serious it was. One slip, one slip up, and he's gone. He also says uh, in Psalm 56, 8, 8 and 9, he says, you have, you have, listen to this, you have kept count of my tossings, and you put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. Have you ever reflected on the reality that God sees every one of your tears and keeps track of the pain that produced those tears? Of the fear and the anxiety that produced those tears? Of the joy that produced those tears? Whatever the emotion was that overflowed, that came out through tears, God has seen and caught every one of them. He cares lovingly for us, and he is for us. There is a tendency when you're in the wilderness, in dark, desperate times, to believe the lie that God is not for us. Just like the Israelites who believed the lie that God delivered us out of Egypt and he brought us out into the wilderness so that he could just destroy us. That was offensive to God. They totally misunderstood God's heart for them. And he said, they said, because he hated us. Because he hates us. And it's a lie and we must resist it. We must stand against those lies with biblical truth and what is very clear about who God is. He's for us. David said, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. And lastly, the thing that David teaches us is how to praise God in hard times. He said in Psalm 57, my heart is steadfast. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. 
I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I love the emphasis on God's glory. The praise of God. Praise to his glorious name. Praise him for the glorious and great things that he has done. Psalm 34 again, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. David was resolved to praise God and bless God's name at all times, not just when life was good, not just when he had all the comforts of family and, and position and, and life's going well and the sun's shining down and he's, it's, it's, it's a day at the beach, calm and peaceful. He was committed to praise God in the hurricanes and the storms and the clouds were dark and the waves were tumultuous and the winds were terrifying. May we do the same. May we continually resolve to, to praise God's name and rely on God. And so let me close with a couple points of application here. First of all, be direct with God in prayer when you don't have pleasant things to communicate. When what's on your heart and what's on your mind is not pleasant, it's painful. It's undesirable. It's the reality some folks have bought into this, this lie that the best way to, to deal with that is just think positive thoughts and ignore the negative. Just think positive thoughts. They'll go away. Just ignore them. Now, yes, we're told to meditate on what's pure and lovely and praiseworthy. But we need to be realist and not deny reality. Life is hard. Life is tough. What I'm going through hurts. And healing comes through expressing that grief rather than denying it. Healing comes in talking to God about that grief and that pain and talking to others, trusted friends and family about those things rather than denying it and minimizing the pain of it. Sometimes we've got to look back to go forward and address those things that hinder us from moving forward. And so be direct with God about those things. He can handle it. Pour out your complaint to him. Face your fears by clinging to truths about God and trusting in his promises. Don't try to fight your fears by simply not thinking about them or ignoring them. Get down to what's, what's behind that. Why am, I, why am I hindered by this fear that's unhealthy? And how do I move towards a healthy fear of God? And lastly, refuse to take vengeance into your own hands, but wait for God to act in due time. This is for next week. In Psalm, Lord willing, in, in 1 Samuel 20, 24, David will get an opportunity to take revenge on King Saul. Saul shows up to the cave to use the restroom. That's the story. To relieve himself, it says. So he goes into the cave does his little thing, relieves himself, whatever he's doing. David creeps up on him. He's with his 400 men who are a rough, tough, motley crew, discontented, bitter of soul. And they're like, now's the time. Get him. Get him. And he cuts off a corner of the robe. He doesn't kill him. He could have. He could have took matters into his own hands. 
And instead of taking matters into his own hands, he waited for God to be his defense, to act, and he didn't raise his hand against God's anointed. That's another sermon. I'll, I'll, I'll not go into that anymore. Because that's our tendency when we're going through difficult times is to unleash on everyone else as if everyone else is the problem that we're hurting. Right? And ultimately, we need to bring it to God.